Good morning, friends. We are in a series right now in the book of James, and this morning we're, la- we're taking a look at James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10, and the theme is on conflict. It kind of picks up where Lyndon left off last week, and we're going a little bit deeper into that theme of conflict. I'm wondering if you can tell me what the conflict was in the world that's cost more people's lives than any other conflict since World War II. Okay, you with me? This is the wake-up question in the morning. This is to see if you're still with me here. What conflict has cost more people's lives than any other conflict since World War II? Sorry? Okay. That could be true. <laughs> That's a very good answer. Uh, another one? Say it loud. Okay. No. You guys are way too spiritual. Okay, think about this. I'm talking about conflicts on planet Earth. Nations fighting each other and killing one another. Another word for this is war. What wars have cost more people's lives than any other war since World War II? Are you with me now? Pol Pot. Nope. 9-11. Nope. War on terror. No, not at all. Oil? Nope. Religion? Nope. These are very thoughtful answers. But, uh, okay, you could have said the Korean War. Uh, it's about a million plus people. You could have said the Rwandan genocide. That's about 800,000 people. The conflict, the war that's cost more lives than any other war is the Great African War. It's not great because it's fantastic. It's great because it encompassed so many countries. Between five and seven million people have died in eastern Africa in the last 20, 25 years. At the root of that Great African War which most of us have known nothing about, is the Hutu-Tutsi ethnic conflict. You've heard about this. It's the genocide in Rwanda. It's the Hutus that have gone into eastern Congo. It's, it, it's pulled in all those countries, Burundi, uh, you know, Uganda, and all those, all those related countries. So, so the source of that conflict is the migration of Tutsis from what's now the Ethiopian area, because of migratory and cattle raising needs, they moved into the Great Lakes region of Eastern Congo about 250, 300 years ago. That migration brought thousands of people who are now millions of people. So this is a migration that's hundreds of years old. But the indigenous population, the Hutu population, has felt increasing resentment toward the presence of their Hutu or their Tutsi neighbors. And when the colonial powers came in, they realized the Tutsis have got a little more aptitude in terms of education. They seem to have greater sort of organizational leadership prowess, and so they gave them favored positions in the bureaucracy and in the universities and in the training opportunities. And so Hutus felt like they were the dominant in terms of population numbers, but they weren't getting the privileged opportunities. And as they saw the gap between Tutsis and Hutus grow, the resentment, jealousy, anger, 
all of that grew. And it's cost millions and millions and millions of people's lives. One of those communities in South Kivu uh, experienced, in that region, a fairly normal experience. A Hutu militia came in, massacred all the people one evening. One guy was left for dead. He went to a clinic. He survived. They would not want to have any survivors because survivors tell stories. So this guy survived to tell the story. He then walked from that uh, region there in eastern Congo. He walked all the way down to Malawi, to a refugee camp in Malawi. His name's Safari. It's actually a longer name, but that's the name he calls himself. Uh, he's, he came to Christ in eastern Congo. He's part of a Mennonite Brethren church there. When he went down to Malawi after this four-month trek, he felt God calling him to plant a church. So we've been walking with him for a number of years now. Two years into that church plant, he saw the man in the refugee camp who killed his family. The leader of the militia who killed this whole village is in the camp. Now himself a refugee. What do you do? You're a Christian. You're a Christ follower. This is the guy who just like totally changed your life. He walks up to him. He engages them in conversation. The man quickly realizes where he's from, and they share uh, that memory. He says, where are you having dinner tonight? He says, I, I, I've just arrived. I have no place. Come to my house for dinner. Came to his house for dinner. Hey, where are you staying tonight? I don't have a place to stay. You can stay here. Hosted him for three years in his house. This man saw the gospel. This is a Hutu militia leader trained by the Americans, part of the presidential guard of the president of Congo. He is a mercenary. He's killed people all over eastern Africa. He fell out of favor with the government of Congo. He's now a refugee. This guy is a trained killer. He's in his home. He didn't come to Christ the first night. He didn't come to Christ the first year. Three years of watching a demonstration of the gospel, and this guy says, I want to follow Jesus. I want the life you have. Came to Christ, is baptized, and now he's one of the site leaders, one of the pastors of a church planting movement that's grown out of that refugee camp and that's spread to 36 churches in Malawian communities all around the refugee camp. He's one of the site leaders. So I interviewed these two guys. I don't know if you got their picture. Yeah, so the guy on the right is the militia leader. He's got a really nice scar on his forehead there. Don't know how that happened. The guy on the left there, that's Safari. The power of the gospel is greater than anything that the UN or any other peace organization can bring. And I've seen it again and again and again around the world. It transforms not just conflict issues, but the gospel transforms hearts, which is the source of conflict. It's where the conflict originates. And this is what James is getting at with this text. And I want to read it together with you. And uh, I thanked Tim for giving me this text. Not really. This is a hard text. There's a lot of words here that I wouldn't normally use in church, but here we go. 
James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you can't have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you don't ask God. And when you ask, you don't receive. Because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the Spirit He caused to live in us envies intensely, but He gives us more grace? That's why Scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. You still okay? (laughs) This gets right to the heart of conflict. Anyone here have absolutely no conflict issues in their life? This, you can just take a pass on what I'm about to say for the next 30 minutes. If conflict is relevant for you, I'm asking you to do something this morning, more than just listen to a guy tell stories and look at scripture. I'm asking you to invite the Spirit of God into your own heart, story, and counsel you this morning. Are you okay with that? So I feel like this is a counseling text. I feel like the Holy Spirit wants to counsel us this morning. But he won't counsel us without us engaging our will. That means we have to say, yes, Lord, you are free to counsel me this morning. Can you do that? So, Father, I thank you that you're with us through the Spirit of God this morning, and I'm asking in each one of our hearts, Lord, that you would be our counselor. You know where the conflict issues are in our lives. And we ask you to just shine a light on our hearts, Lord. Instead of pointing fingers, we're just asking you to speak to us about our own hearts. Give us grace this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name. So this text begins with the root. Right to the heart of the issue. What is the root? He asks, what causes fights and quarrels? And he points out, They come from desires. Desires like recognition. Desires like our need to be understood. Our need to be valued. Perhaps successful. Our need for safety and security. Our need to be in control. The desires within us, not all bad are at the root of conflict, according to James. We have a desire to love others. We have a desire, often, to forgive. We have a desire to be a friend. But these desires are at war, he says, within our lives. There's actually a conflict, not just between us and others, but there's a conflict within our own hearts as to which desires will be preeminent. 
It takes incredible courage to invite the Spirit of God to counsel us and to show us what's going on in our hearts. What is motivating us? And in particular, when we're in conflict, what are the trigger points that have caused a reaction? What has, what has, what has moved us from a place of, uh, of calmness to a place of, of, of fear, agitation, even anger? I've told this story before, but I had a profound experience on a friend's deck many years ago that exposed a fear of failure in my life. And the Holy Spirit just graciously, as I asked him, Lord, is there anything in the way of our relationship? said, yes, there's a fear of failure. And I just had that impression. Those thoughts would not have been there apart from the Spirit of God. And I was taken aback. I said, I'm not a failure. He said, you don't have to be a failure to have a fear of failure. Okay, show me the root of this in my life. He took me back to grade five. I could see myself looking at the class list. I've been taken out of a gifted class, put in a general level class, And it was because of a speech impediment in my life that I got in East Africa. Uh, So there you go. As a kid, grade two, three, four, I had a a stuttering problem. And I was put in special ed. I was at a grade eight reading comprehension level, reading novels, but I couldn't speak out loud. So I got put in a general level class, first day of grade five. And that day, the Holy Spirit said just something I would have never have known. He said, that day, you resolved in your heart to prove them wrong. Wow. That could take a year of counseling to get at that. I got to tell you, that is gold. When the Holy Spirit uncovers roots like that, that's gold. So now you have a choice. And he began to take me through the life of Saul and the life of David. You have a choice. Do you want to be a Saul? Saul had a fear of failure. It led to control, fear, in all kinds of areas, and, you know, a, a very dismal end. David could have walked in a fear of failure, but he continued to surrender his fears to God and lived a very open kind of confessional life. We have his prayer book to read for our own uh, encouragement and worship and study. But it's, uh, it was a choice. And as you think about the root of that conflict between Saul and David, even you've got issues there of insecurity, jealousy, competition. It affected not just those two guys, not just their families, it affected the entire kingdom. When leaders fight, whole crowds of people are affected. The implications are massive, massive. One book in that time really, really helped me. I don't know if you've ever come across this book called A Tale of Three Kings. Anyone ever heard of that book by Gene Edwards? A Tale of Three Kings. A great book on competition and leadership transitions. Story of of David, Saul, and Absalom. And uh, those three guys and how, how they fought with each other and the issues of surrender, submission, and humility. But the Holy Spirit wants to give us understanding of what's going on in our own heart and the root of our issues as it relates to conflict and any other issue in our lives. So he says here in verse 2, he says, you want something, but you don't get it. Now you might think, I just want to be safe. I just want to be in safe, protected relationships. I'm being threatened here. 
knowing what's going on at a deeper level is so incredibly helpful. You want something, you don't get it. Think back on your last conflict. What was going on inside your heart? What was motivating you in that conflict? Ask that question. Ask the Holy Spirit, what was going on inside my heart in that conflict? Couples, they fight about finances. We have savers, we have spenders. They fight about physical intimacy. They fight about their children. Missionaries sometimes fight about strategy, direction, control. Churches, churches don't fight, do they? No. What's going on inside our hearts? What is going on at a heart level? What's motivating us? James says we don't have because we don't ask God. So according to James, he's saying the, the first response with our wants or our desires is would we take them to God? Would we bring those wants to God rather than working them out and demanding they be met by other people? Can we take them first to God? What's a better way forward? Second point, recognition. He says in verse four, don't you know? Starts by saying you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? There is a, an awareness, a kind of a point of recognition, he's saying, that is essential to understanding what's going on in the recesses of our heart as it relates to motives. Don't you know? When God begins to get our attention in terms of our relationship with him in dealing with the root issues, he's often calling us back to first love, to dependency, to surrender of our lives with him. This relationship is the essential, primary, first relationship before we, we start working out our issues in our horizontal relationships. And he uses a very strong word here. He says adulterous, which means you have a relationship with God, but you have another lover that you go to and that you, uh, you, you, know, you consort with. And he's saying when we take our needs and we look to other people or our own devices to meet those needs, we're actually adulterers in our relationship with God. Bottom line, you can't have it both ways. We can't be friends with the world, according to James, and God's friend as well. And he says that kind of thinking is double-mindedness. Same word he uses in chapter one. Thinking two very different things and believing both of them that are uh, contradictory at the same time. Actually trusting in two different um, sources uh, to meet our needs at the same time and recognizing that, uh, and we need to recognize that that's simply not possible. A lot of us convince ourselves that we can have Jesus for salvation, forgiveness of sin, and have a lot of other lovers to take care of all of our needs, the everyday practical needs. He's saying that's double-minded. That's double-minded. I've got a, a friend who has uh, really uh, kind of parked his relationship with God for at least 20 years now. 
made tremendous amounts of money. When he, when he made the first couple of million, he cashed in his first marriage. So he just looked for a younger wife, and he divorced, got a couple of kids, but a lot of pain in his family at that point. He's won millions of dollars in business lawsuits, defending patents and that kind of stuff. And uh, just recently built a massive house, but had a litigation himself on the windows. So we have $300,000 in custom windows. That's a lot of coin for windows, right? That's just the window bill. Custom windows, massive planes, panes of glass. And the installers not only gave him the wrong window, custom, but they put him in wrong. They put him in upside down. So he shows up, and he realizes the windows have been put in with a sledgehammer. He's like, stop everything. Workman out of the house, calls the supplier, wrong windows, and, and, uh, and, and a, an atrocious install. They're actually put in wrong. Installer and the, you know, the building supply company says, no, you're wrong. Our guys did the right thing. He's like, come down here. So anyways, this thing devolves into litigation. He's litigating some of the biggest building supply guys in that region. And uh, it's, the conflict is escalating. This thing prolongs his build. In the cul-de-sac that he lives, we're talking about multi-million dollar homes. People, his neighbors are ticked off at him because there's constant trucks and workmen and mud and all kinds of stuff in the, in the cul-de-sac. They're like, enough with this build. He's, he's got oughts with his neighbors. He's got problems with the suppliers. And then he's building a mock-up of one of these windows for a deposition in front of a judge. Because he's going to prove that he's right. He builds this thing, because he can, and it falls over in his garage. We're talking about a massive piece of glass. The thing falls over, and he tries to steady it, and he breaks his arm. Totally like smashes up his forearm. He has to get plates, screws, everything. He actually goes into the deposition with a broken arm because he's waiting for a surgeon to repair it. He's in pain and meds. And it's in this moment that he goes, my life sucks. What's going wrong? I've got everything, but I got nothing. He starts watching, actually listening to Ravi Zacharias at night, kind of like pornography. Late night, because his girlfriend, his wife, he doesn't want her to know about it. He's got his headphones on. He's listening to Ravi Zacharias. He's like, this guy's making sense. After 20 years as a prodigal, he turns his heart towards home. And this guy begins to surrender his life to Jesus. And I've been just fascinated on this journey of watching a man's heart turn back to God, become soft and surrendered and broken. The first thing he's doing is he's going back to all the broken relationships and he's making them right. He's repenting for sinful choices, motives, and attitudes. The Spirit of God inside of us envies intensely And if we think we can have it both ways, we're kidding ourselves. Because the Holy Spirit is going to pursue us. 
And sometimes he's going to allow things to get really bad in our lives. The wheels will fall off. And when they do, the question is, will we humble ourselves? Will we allow the Spirit of God to draw us back in repentance before our first love? So James is pleading with us to get right with God. And then the horizontal relationships uh, can be restored. So the third step, if we're going to look at the root, which is our motives, desires, the things that are in the hidden recesses of our heart, and then recognition, recognizing that our friendship with God and our friendship with the world are, is not possible at the same time. The third thing that I see in this text is repentance. He says in verse 7, submit then, submit yourselves then to God. Submit yourselves then to God. That call to repentance is God's way out. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Grace is just undeserved favor, the mercy of God that we don't deserve in Christ. And where God's grace is present, his spirit is free to move. So what does repentance look like in the conflicts of our lives? What does repentance look like? Sometimes we say, okay, I'm, I'm a I'm a minority shareholder in this conflict here. I've got maybe 5, 10%, but the other person's got at least 90. Repentance is the humility to engage the conflict and own our own stuff and say, allow me, Spirit of God, to see what I need to repent of and then own it and ask for forgiveness and then communicate that desire for freedom and forgiveness to those we're in conflict with, this humility draws the grace and presence and strength of God. It's in our weakness that God can be strong. When we walk in pride, we give the enemy a foothold uh, in our lives and we allow him to whisper, whispers to our minds about people, about circumstances, and as we indulge those whispers, our hearts get colder, harder, and more difficult uh, in terms of the transformation. But as we humble ourselves and listen to the whispers of the Holy Spirit, we begin to s- turn and go the other way, which is what repentance means. I was in a church a few weeks ago, and there was a, just a call for just getting right with God at the end of the service, and, and there's people you know, just responding, and I was kneeling beside this woman at the altar, and she was, uh, she was just getting right with God. She was crying, and I was praying with her. And I just said, I just, uh, you know, what is it that you're returning from? And uh, she says, you know, just, uh, she, she talked about her, uh, uh, her heart and, and love, interest, you know, kind of needing to be resolved and dealt with. She was kind of vague. And so I was just, I just asked a few more questions. And her family's in the, you know, her family's in the church service. And she's getting her heart right with God. And I just sense there's more, there's more. And she's able to confess, I'm in an adulterous relationship with my boss at work. It's been going on for years. I've wanted to get right with God. I go to these church services, but I can't actually break the hold of this adulterous relationship. And I said, today is the day. This is it. Today is the day. And so as we repented together, 
Repentance doesn't mean, God, I'm sorry only, and I want forgiveness. Repentance means you've got to talk to your boss like today. You've got to break this thing off today. And you're going to have to talk to your husband. You're going to have to actually open this up to him. And I don't know where this is going to end. I don't know. But I just know that your relationship with God is absolutely the core of your, of your life. It's eternal. And you can't play games with God anymore. And so this woman uh, walked off that podium, walked away from that podium with a determination to walk out repentance. Walk out repentance. It's costly. I get that. But Jesus gives us grace. There's grace to do what we can't do in our own strength. What happens if somebody hurts you? What, what does repentance look like when somebody hurts you? Early in uh, my ministry, uh, just as a young youth pastor, had a really strange um, situation where uh, a man who uh, was formerly a pastor and uh, was actually a missionary in South America was in our congregation. He'd been removed from his missionary position and he was wanting to get back into ministry. He was in the, he was, he was putting up, uh, you know, he's, he's in the building trade business, but feeling frustrated. He has, a, he has a, a master's degree in divinity. He wanted to be in ministry, not doing, you know, uh, you know, siding on houses. And uh, he saw me as the person who was in the way. So I'm, I'm a youth and college pastor, but I was the second staff person. And so he thought if, I, he could, if he could remove me, then he could be the associate pastor in our church. I didn't even, uh, I had no, no uh, interaction with them, negative, positive. I just knew his kids were the hardest kids in our youth group to pastor. So I'm investing double time in his kids, and this is a guy who's working behind the scenes to get me removed from my job. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that where someone is trying to get you removed from your job. Can you relate to this? It's a sick feeling. It's a very sick feeling. Now you, think about this. What would you do? You could, you could go to that person and you could say, stop doing this. You're lobbying elders and pastors to remove me. This is wrong. And by the way, I'm taking care of your kids. Like, you could do that. What the Holy Spirit was counseling me to do was he was asking me, who, who put you in this assignment? I said, you did, Lord. He said, then you talk to me about this. You don't talk to anybody else about it. I said, okay, I'm talking to you about it. You called me to this position. You defend me. Now that, my friends, is called a crucible. That's a really hot place that you can't get out of. And it just keeps getting hotter and hotter and hotter. You want to defend yourself, but the Lord says don't. So that was a test. And I was praying, and that didn't just happen in a few days. That happened over months. That happened over months. And finally, this man went to our pastor, had breakfast with him, and was lobbying overtly for this, new, for this job as an associate pastor. And the, in the course of that conversation, he blew up. He just got angry. He blew up temper. And the pastor just said, hey, we're done. He stormed out of the restaurant and the whole thing was done. 
you know, he, he actually, uh, he left the church. He went back to the mission field, if you can believe this. Crazy stuff. Looking for validation through a position in ministry. Validation for his identity and his worth as a person. And his daughter, 16-year-old girl, went catatonic on Sunday morning in the church library. Catatonic, sitting there, completely zoned out. Call the ambulance, call 911, psych ward, for months. Because of the stress and pressure of this family's dysfunctionality. Crazy, crazy stuff. But God's invitation to me was humble yourself. This is not your battle. This is my battle. This is my battle. Maybe some of you are in that situation today where you're being opposed, there's conflict, and the Lord wants to say to you, actually, this is not about you. I'm going to do a work here. Your job is to humble yourself and trust in me. Submit yourselves then to God. Sometimes it doesn't mean repentance. Sometimes it just means surrender. And God is able then to deliver us in his timing. Lots more stories on that front. You've got your own stories. But let's humble ourselves in the conflicts that we're in. Resistance is the next step. It says, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. And I would say that this is often under-practiced. We submit to God, we repent, but we don't actually do spiritual warfare. And he says, there's a very real enemy named Satan who you resist in the authority that you've been given in Christ. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Christ won a victory over Satan on the cross. The question is, are we applying that victory to the battles that we fight in our own lives by faith? And he says, it's up to us to resist the devil and he will flee from us. It's the same, it's the same teaching that Paul or that Peter gives in fall, uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour uh, you, me. Resist him, standing firm in your faith because you know that your brothers, sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So our job is to stand firm in the victory that Christ has won for us in his authority and say no, pride, fear, lust, go. Jealousy, anger, no. I resist you in Jesus' name. There's times when that battle is intense and uh, uh, I've prayed with people who are under the influence of the enemy. Christians, okay, Christians. I was once invited to a Bible study uh, by a panicked intervarsity worker late at night. He said, help me, there's a guy acting strange in this Bible study. So I went to the Bible study and everyone had left. He said uh, he was just pacing around the room making weird noises. This is the, and it's, it's in his house. He's hosting the Bible study with a bunch of college students. I said, okay. Where is he now? He's in the basement. Went down to the basement, sitting on a sofa chair. And uh, anyways, long and short, as I began to pray and ask the Holy Spirit how to pray, this guy launched out of that sofa, foaming at the mouth like a caged animal, arms at his, like, just fists ready to, he launched right at me like he's going to take my head off. And I just said, in the name of Jesus, he hit a wall, an invisible wall, one foot from me, 
and was pinned. And I guarantee you, if you could see, there'd be angels right there pinning him. He did not touch me. Came right here, and then I said, sit down in Jesus' name. The guy sat down like a, I don't know, it was just surreal. Happened so fast, so fast. Found out that he himself opened the door to the enemy through anger from an abusive family. His dad was an alcoholic, beat the kids, beat his wife, and he just one day heard a voice when he was 14. The voice said, kill him. Came back home. Dad was raging drunk. voice said, kill him. He put his dad in the hospital, broke ribs. And from that day on, he's had demonic rage in his life. Now, he's a Christian, okay? He's going to church. But he's not happy. And he fights the pastor. And he fights others. It's a problem. No one was willing to deal with the root of the problem, which was demonic. Until you get at that root and the influence of the enemy in this guy's life, he's going to make the life of the leadership of this church incredibly difficult. Sometimes that's the nature of the battle. And you got to go there. And if you don't know how to go there, the problems will persist. So James is saying, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And we sometimes need freedom from those oppressions that we give place to. The last thing in this text is humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. There's no hand greater than the hand of God on our lives. There's no one who can lift us up more than the Lord. And as we humble ourselves, even in the midst of conflict before God and before others, God will raise us up. God will lift us up. And uh, that's been the testimony of God's people throughout the ages. Conflict happens, but it's often God's refining, sanctifying, transforming tool used to expose issues in our lives that he wants to transform us in. And then it's an opportunity for us to rely on his grace and be lifted up by the hand of God and, re and restored Restored in relationships, restored in joy, restored in peace, and in freedom. My prayer is if any of us are in conflict today, that we will experience the hand of God on our lives as we humble ourselves and trust that he will lift us up. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you today that there is freedom. There's freedom because of what Jesus did for us and I ask Lord that the price that you paid would be applied to the battles within our own lives and Lord I'm asking for the, again the counseling work of the Holy Spirit Lord you know what desires battle within us today as you expose those desires I pray for the grace to repent and to surrender desires that we've taken to others rather than taking to you. Would you protect us? Would you establish us? Would you love us? Would you encourage us? Lord, be our everything. And Father, we thank you that you are enough for every one of us. And I ask, Lord, that as we walk 
with you in, in some of the relational challenges that we have, Lord, that you'd use them to continue to disciple us and sanctify us and reveal your love, your grace through us. Thank you, Father, for just uh, these practical words from James this morning that you want to use to transform us. I ask you to seal these words, Lord, may the enemy not snatch us away. In Jesus' name, amen.